Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Brad Chase is our special guest on the show today. He was the mastermind behind Microsoft's launch of Windows 95 and Internet Explorer. He was also the executive at Microsoft responsible for the successful turnaround of MSN. Since retiring from Microsoft, he's been a philanthropist, board advisor, and just released his first book, Strategy First. Before we get a chance to speak with Brad, it's a Leadership Hacker News. Ever wondered what it takes to become a life master at the card game bridge? The strategic card game normally takes players decades to accumulate 500 master points by playing at tournaments and accredited clubs. An eight-year-old Californian boy has become the youngest bridge player to ever be awarded the title of life master by the world's largest organization dedicated to the card game. The American Contract Bridge League said that Andrew Chen of San Jose was granted the title of life master just three days after his eighth birthday. Andrew had set out a plan at the age of six years old to become a life master, and it's always been his goal. Andrew has been able to earn points in just two years by participating in local games and playing online. His final points towards a life master title came in May 27, when an online game hosted at the Palo Alto Bridge Club called ThinkSlam. When interviewed, Andrew said, I'm totally thrilled. I feel like my hard work and patience and practice has paid off, and I want to thank everyone who helped him getting there. Sounds just like an eight-year-old, doesn't it, right? Not. Andrew's brother Charlie has also won Rookie of the Year, who's just only 10, and recently just won the Paris event in the San Mateo County sectional tournament. What is it that draws you to the game of bridge so much? Andrew said he just loves the puzzle-solving element of the game. He likes to work things out. And there are parallels here in the leadership world too, aren't there? We're often presented with problems and therefore puzzles, and they'll present themselves to us readily, but do we get really excited and motivated in solving them, and in turn, turn on those helpful neurotransmitters, or do we get frustrated and fearful, and therefore unlock less helpful thinking? And here's the thing, it takes practice. Just like Andrew would have played hundreds and hundreds of hands of cards to learn patterns and read things, and to be aware of how their relatedness are connected. We as leaders also need to do the same thing, practicing with our communication, our approach, our knowledge, our understanding of the people and the businesses that we work with. The more we practice, the more knowledge we develop. And the more knowledge that we practice of what does and what doesn't work, it possesses us to have more effective and adaptive and responsive way to leading and supporting others. Of course, the more knowledge we have, the easier it is to see patterns and situations. So good luck with your next hand. That's been Leadership Hacking News. If you have any news, insights or information you think our listeners would like to hear, please get in touch. Our special guest on the show today is Brad Chase. He's a strategist, leadership and marketing expert, and the author of Strategy First. Brad, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast. Hey, Steve. Great to be here. 
So most people know you as being one of the inspirers and inspiration behind some of the biggest and most successful initiatives at Microsoft during your successful executive career there. Tell us a little bit about your backstory. Well, my backstory is I started uh, at Microsoft in 1987 after uh, going to an MBA school here in the States, uh, Northwestern Kellogg. I worked on a number of projects over time. I was the first leader of Microsoft Office, for example, the, the marketing of it. And then I went and launched uh, MS-DOS 5, uh, led the development and launch of MS-DOS 6, and perhaps uh, got most known for leading the marketing of Windows 95, which for your listeners that don't know, was sort of the Microsoft product that ushered computers and arguably my, uh, Microsoft itself and Bill Gates himself into the mainstream. Right. For me, it was the inflection point. I remember in you know when windows 95 came along it just completely changed the whole perspective of how people were perceiving and using pcs right right it was it was a very crazy time and i'm sure we'll talk more about it and then after that i did many initiatives related to the internet like leading the teams uh, on internet different versions of internet explorer and then finally i was brought in to turn around msn at the end of my career and then I retired from Microsoft uh, in 2002. And then for the past years since then, I've been doing board work, consulting. Um, I've been doing uh, some philanthropy and advisory work. And now I uh, wrote my first book, uh, Strategy First. For most part, you saw an enormous transformation and change across the whole of Microsoft organization through some massive big initiatives. And there's a really interesting story that you share in your book around the whole principle of how you got Windows 95 marketing campaign up and running with the backstory of Start Me Up. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. Okay, well, I'll tell you two pieces. Um, the first piece is about Windows 95 itself. So I was brought in to lead the Windows 95 marketing and had to build a marketing strategy for Windows 95. And one of the interesting things about that was that at the time, the strategy was not to tell anybody anything about Windows 95. And one night after putting the kids to bed, I was thinking hard about it and got inspired with what I called the E strategy, educate, excite, and engage. Uh, educate, all the different customers about Windows 95, get them excited about it, and then engage the industry on Windows 95. And that E strategy, as we called it back then, was sort of the foundation of, of Windows 95's marketing strategy. So we turned it all on its head. Instead of not telling anything about Windows 95, we flipped the marketing strategy and decided to tell everybody everything we could. And that strategy ended up being very successful as it was a way to get people bought into Windows 95 to understand it and not be scared about the change and to get third parties building products for it. Until that time, Brad, Microsoft really hadn't spent an awful lot of time in the TV and marketing space. What was the reason for that? Right. Well, that's a great question, Steve. So as part of this strategy, I set the goal to turn Windows 95 into a consumer phenomenon. And part of that was let's do product TV commercials for the first time, which is where the Rolling Stone story comes in. And that was a lot of fun and a, and a crazy time. So uh, 
in those days, the way we did it is we would have an advertising agency, in this case, a firm called Wyden Kennedy, famous in the U.S. for originating the Nike Just Do It ads. And they were a very creative firm, but they weren't coming up with the right campaign for Windows 95. And after a few times, they finally came up with this idea of basing some ads on Start Me Up, the very famous uh, Rolling Stones song from Tattoo You, the album Tattoo You. And I said, wow, this is great. It's right on strategy. Way to go. And then they said, but we have one problem. We can't get rights to the song. Right. And I, at first, we had some pretty heated discussions about that, because why would you present a concept that we couldn't actually execute on? Sure. Um, and, you know, they wanted, they said the only way the Stones would do it is if we sponsored their next uh, concert tour for $10 million, which was not in my budget. So they said, well, we hope you will go do the negotiations with the Stones. So I flew out to Amsterdam. And this was in May, I think, of 95. And, uh, you know, spent a whole day negotiating with the Stones. And we went back and forth at this old ornate hotel and could not really make progress. And they tried to convince me to stay the next day, but my schedule at that time didn't allow for that. Um, so they said, well, stay the next day and then you could go to the concert that the Stones were playing at the Paradiso, a great old theater in Amsterdam. And I said, well, I, I really can't stay. So they finally said, well, why don't you come to the dress rehearsal tonight? And so I went to the dress rehearsal. The Stones played for two plus hours. They were fantastic. It was amazing. And I was one of only two non-Stones personnel in the building, in the, in the theater. So it felt like a private concert. And it was just fantastic. And at the end, they asked me, so do you want to go meet the Stones? And I thought about it, and I decided that I didn't want anything to ruin the perfection of this private concert. So, I, and you know, so I decided it's no. Pretty neat. And I wasn't yeah. really, you know, that interested in meeting the Stones, and I figured they weren't that interested in meeting me. But half the people I tell that story to say, "Brad, you were an idiot. You should have gone and met the Stones." And the other half say, "Brad, you were a super wise person to decide not to meet." I wonder how much that would have changed your emotional connectivity with that negotiation, though, Brad. Had you gone to meet with them? <laughs> I guess we'll never know. <laughs> yeah, I don't you'll know. know, right. Yeah. Um, and then uh, later we negotiated uh, more over the phone, obviously. Uh, you know, many, many hours and, and days trying to work through all the issues about price primarily, but also rights to the music and how long we could use it and, and so on. And eventually, I said to the Stones, look, you know, we're, you know, the launch is August 24th, 1995. We have a back commercial we're going to run with. So you have to decide. Here's my final offer, you know, basically kind of take it or leave it. And they took it. Um, and there's more to the story and lots of other pieces which we can get into. But that's sort of the high-level overview of the Start Me Up story. Uh, after we launched, rumors started circulating that Bill Gates called Mick Jagger and offered him $12 million or $14 million, you know, sort of dependent on the story, uh, directly. And, and Jagger was so surprised that he said yes, because uh, it was way more money than he ever expected. But all those rumors were not true. Uh, arguably or, you know, speculative uh, speculation, it was that maybe the Stones started those rumors themselves. But we don't really know. Maybe. 
Yeah, a, a good PR for them as well at the same time, of course. Yeah, it was the first time the Stones had ever licensed a song to a, uh, for use in a commercial. And of course, it was a, a really successful campaign. And it, I think it was probably was that inflection point, wasn't it, that where people started to realize that yeah, accessibility to PCs and information uh, and has led the way now to us speaking as we are now and uh, having computers in our pocket most of the time, right? Right. It's all built from that same premise, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I feel very privileged that I've seen this all happen. When I started Microsoft, the company had a goal of a computer in, in every home and in every office running Microsoft software. Because um, back when we started, you know, computers were sort of a hobbyist machine. Well, now not only are computers in every home and, you know, sort of every office, but in the traditional sense, but in the broader sense, since, you know, phones are more powerful computers than the com by a long shot than, you know, the computers that send people to the moon or whatever, um, that uh, we really I do have a computer in every home and in every office and in every pocket uh, uh, in the world almost. You know, it's, you know, some places, unfortunately, there's still, you know, that's not the case, but it's, uh, amazing how the whole world has changed because of computers. Right. And then following your retirement from Microsoft, you spun into the world of sharing your knowledge and your executive experience through your consulting and board work. During that time, when you start to think about strategy and then speaking with the organizations you've worked and consulted with, what would be maybe some of the key themes as to why leaders really can't quite or haven't got hold of strategy as much as you've experienced them getting a hold of other parts of their business? I think that uh, strategy sort of became uh, lost uh, along you know, the way for many companies. You know, they you know, focused on you know, sort of their business without thinking about it strategically because uh, the you know, strategy is hard uh, in, for many people. And that's part of what I'm trying to achieve with the book, by the way, is to make strategy accessible and easy for, you know, senior business leaders, but even aspiring business leaders. Uh, so, you know, when I when I go around, I think people uh, sort of think of strategic planning as some sort of formal exercise that, you know, only big corporations do and have separate departments for. But indeed, strategy is the anatomy of business success and leadership success and it has to be fundamental to what all businesses and in your experience do you often see organizations get confused with strategy versus planning yes uh, organizations get confused on strategy versus planning on strategy versus tactics on strategy versus vision right uh, you know and i could go on there's there is i think not a broad understanding of what strategy is and what I, what I call strategy in a simple way is your plan to compete. And if you think of building your strategy as building your plan to compete and achieve your business goals, that's a sort of a simple way to, and compelling way to understand it. I like that. It's neat. So what was it that compelled you to finally put pen to paper? What compelled me to put uh, pen to paper was I was working with a lot of uh, senior executives and CEOs and providing the essence of my strategy first model to them. And then I started getting asked to do some talks. And that's something else I've been doing since Microsoft is strategy talks. And when I was doing these talks, people would come up to me afterwards and say, where's your book? Where's your book? And so I said, hmm, 
well, okay, I've never done a book right. before. I'll give it a try. And I got inspired and I wrote the book. Awesome. And I've had the, the opportunity to have a look at some of the key themes behind the book. And I kind of call it almost a bit of a, a user-friendly strategy toolkit almost. And there's loads of tools in there. There's loads of things in there that can really help people start to think about how they go about strategy from a practical perspective rather than a, an academic perspective, right? Yeah, that's right, Steve. It's, it's set up that way on purpose. Uh, I very much had a vision for the book. My bet my strategy for the book is that there hasn't been a strategy book that lays out strategy in a non-academic, uh, non-intellectual way, or as you put, in a practical way that gives you tools and stories that help you understand those tools that you could use on a regular basis in your business and that are memorable and helpful. The one thing that struck me when I when I first looked at it was the uh, the play on Einstein's theory of relativity that you use, which is E times MC squared. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. Yeah, sure. Glad to. So the first part of strategy is to remember that strategy is all about making bets. And we make bets all the time in our life, and we make bets in business as well, just like Microsoft bet on the personal computer or Apple bet on you know consumer devices. Um, and when you're trying to figure out what your bets are, I try to tell people there's three key components to strategy. And the three key components are customer value, market potential, and execution. And to help people remember that, I came up with playing off of Einstein's famous equation, E equals MC squared, and I changed it to strategy equals E times MC squared. And it's mnemonic. The E stands for execution, the M stands for market potential, and the C stands for customer value. And the C is squared because customer value in almost all strategies, though not all, is what's most important. Got that. And to help your readers and the people you work with get some real clarity over their strategy, you've broken this down into five real steps to help them through that thinking. And I wonder if we could just maybe spin through some of those and just have a think about you know how they work in principle. The first being seek change. Now, given the sort the uncertainty that we're in at the moment, do you see this as an opportunity for organizations and people to really seek different in a period of kind of turmoil? Yes, I do. But I also want to be realistic about the difficulty that businesses are going through in this COVID tsunami that we're facing today. Uh, you know, for a lot of businesses, there's just not a lot of uh, great options, even with the greatest of creativity or or uh, inspiration. That said, in some cases, there are opportunities. You know, for example, if you're a business that has had to move much of what you do online and you're a local business, now that you're online, you might be able to grow to new customer bases. Right. So while realistically, it's uh, tough. Uh, very, very tough for many businesses uh, to manage around all the ch you know, challenges of, of COVID. Uh, it's also, in some cases, an opportunity. And for some lucky few, you know, if you're, if you're my, the Microsoft Teams group or your Zoom or your Logitech selling headsets, you know, there's a whole set of products that, uh, you know, just happen to be in the right place in the right time or a set of companies that are in the right place in the right time. And for them, it's a huge opportunity. What do you think causes organizations to maybe feel more comfort rather than seek change readily? 
what causes that in your experience? Yeah, that's the same as life, right? Change scares people uh, and then they get frozen. Uh, but change is key to strategic opportunity. When there's change, there's always strategic opportunity. I mean, just look around and see the companies that have responded to the growth of the web and the internet. Those that have responded to that change have done very well generally, while those who did not um, are uh, struggling. And, you know, COVID right. unfortunately has made that even more pronounced. But but, you know, the Internet was a huge opportunity for so many companies and those that took advantage of the change the Internet represented uh, were the most successful companies of our era. Yeah. The second step you have is called Mine the Gaps. Tell us what you're trying to achieve here. So change is sort of taking advantage of change is sort of the textbook way people talk about strategy, you know, look for disruption or seek change. But it turns out, of course, that many times you have a great strategic opportunity just taking advantage of gaps that are out there in the marketplace because companies are not competing at the top of their game. You know, for example, Google wasn't the first search company and there was many search companies before Google, but Google came up with a much better, more compelling search product. And because it added much more customer value than the other search products on the market, Google was able to build a huge business around search. You know, sort of the same with the iPhone. It wasn't the first smartphone, but it was so superior in so many ways that Apple, like Google, was able to mine a gap on customer value and build something that customers just loved a lot more than the competition and therefore build a big business. So there's example after example of companies who mine gaps uh, where other companies were not providing enough customer value or they were executing poorly. And th these companies swooped in and built a winning strategy based on those gaps. Strategically as well, it, it's a winner, isn't it? Because you already have evidence and data of other organizations and other businesses who are already operating a certain way. So you've got a lot of almost market research to call on before you enter into that business area, right? Yeah, that's right. In a lot of cases, when you're uh, implementing a strategy of innovation and uh, as one of the types of change you can seek uh, or other types of change, there's not a lot of data uh, and it's hard. Your, your instinct is what's driving a lot of the, the bet you're making. Whereas a lot of times in something like, you know, let's say the search business, you know everyone was searching on the, on, on the web. You know it's a big business and there's a huge opportunity there. And you, you could easily find out by, by just your own experience, let alone doing more formal research, that in the early days of search, customers were not satisfied with the responses. And building a better search was a huge opportunity that Google took advantage of. It is, yeah. Excellent. The next part of your five-step process is the adapting to tides or adapt to the tides, you call it. And that's around kind of the external factors and how you can respond to different environments and demographics as they change, right? That, that's right. Yeah. And what would you say would be the, the biggest tide right now, notwithstanding the obvious that's in front of us, but we, what would be maybe the emerging tides that you could maybe foresee that we should be thoughtful of as, as leaders of businesses right now? Well, wow. Uh, I think the tides are shifting and swirling in such ways now that sure. it's hard to ignore COVID and try to and try to uh, guess, uh, you know, what's going to happen. We just don't know where the tides are going to go. But I, th I have made some guesses in some, you know, blog posts of my own recently. And certainly I think that 
uh, automation is going to increase and AI is going to increase. Digital transformation is uh, another tide that's, I think, very important. Obviously, there's going to be more work at home. Uh, there's going to be a little bit less uh, working in offices. You're going to have a lot more of folks rethinking sort of the foundations of how they do their business. Um, I think that that's uh, some of the uh, some of the tides that are probably pretty obvious. Other ones like you know more people. Uh, eating in to eat out, you know, takeout or del food delivery services are going to grow. So, I mean, we could go on for quite a long time, uh, but I think it's hard to say what are the trends independent of COVID because COVID's going to transform how, you know, businesses run around the world. And of course, it'd be very different for different economies and different environments that people work in. I guess the, the premise here is that You've got to adapt when opportunities or challenges present themselves so that you can become and become effectively agile and more effective as time goes on. That's right. I mean, the five key tips to help build winning strategies, you know, the one that uh, we're talking about now, adapt to the tides, is often the one forgotten by leaders. Uh, the external environment around you changes everything, you know, whether it's technology change, whether it's government regulation or institutions, whether it's demographic changes and the way a different generation of people or, or, or a different culture might affect your strategy. Or it might be something like, you know, the way the economy is going or changing, which is obviously something now, environmental changes like climate change or COVID um, and just societal change. You know, I, I, for example, one could argue now that there's going to be a, a, a further trend towards casual clothes as a result of people have been working from at home. They're not dressing up for work. And that might just continue even as we go back to offices in, in many cases. Yeah. The next part of your five step process is the expand universe bit and that comes from thinking about rather than chase new and new markets and alluring tempting business opportunities that it actually expand the universe you've got within your own customer base is that based on experience that you've from your microsoft days where you you kind of learned this approach well um it's i think it's based on experience from microsoft and beyond i don't want to limit expanding the universe to just uh, growing with your current customers. You can expand your universe very successfully by going to new customers or new businesses or through acquisitions and so forth. Right. But often, as you're implying, uh, people forget about the opportunity of expanding their universe via their own customer base by offering uh, way, you know, new ways or new services for their existing customers. And, you know, that's, that's, uh, a key way to grow the business. You can't just uh, you can't just keep selling to the same base the same way and grow your business over time. So if that's a goal of yours, you do have to think about clever ways to grow your business. And there's you know millions of examples of this because it happens all the time. You know, soda companies offering new sodas or different packaging for the same customers. You know, maybe you're an auto repair shop like Midas in the United States that started with mufflers and then grew to breaks and so that they can sell more products to the same customer base got it and the last one i really love by the way you call this climb short walls and build tall walls how did that come about so if you're going into a business you ideally want to enter a business where the walls aren't too tall you know you're not going to try to go compete with microsoft and amazon in the cloud business uh, because 
the foundational cloud infrastructure business is so expensive and so difficult and requires all this, you know, really specialized expertise and data centers and so forth. Uh, on the other hand, you want to go into businesses that are the tall uh, that have short walls. You want to build tall walls. So if you're if you're in a business. You want to think about how do I create walls around the business that make it harder for my customers to compete? And there's lots of different ways to build tall walls. So, for example, sometimes marketing is a tall. You can build marketing tall walls with frequent flyer miles as, a, you know, sort of a prototypical example, you know, that make people loyal to airlines, or at least when they were flying. And, you know, there's, there's many types of tall walls. Another type of tall wall can be a brand tall wall. Uh, you can build a tall wall by having a brand that people trust and that is a brand that people rely on. Another tall wall is what's called a network effect. And there's lots of different types of network effects. But, for example, when you use your iPhone, you are more likely to keep using your iPhone because of the apps. And as more people uh, use the iPhone because there's apps, then people build even more apps. Right. So those apps make it harder for you to switch from away from your iPhone. Just like other features that Apple's built in, like FaceTime or instant messaging or being able to use your AirPods. Those are all things that Apple's done strategically to build tall walls and, by the way, expand their universe um, and get more revenue. And so it's a great strategy for on Apple's front to do that to add services and new products around the iPhone that make you more loyal to the iPhone and make it harder uh, for you to switch. And oh, by the way, now people are buying their phones less frequently, buying new phones less frequently. Yeah. So it used to be people bought a new smartphone every two years. Now it's more like three years. So as a consequence, these additional services not only are really important to build a tall wall for Apple, they're very important to you know, keep their revenue and profits up. Really like that. And it's it's an interesting philosophy, isn't it, about when we are looking to grow businesses or organizations, what typically happens is we might have big ambitions and, and they, those walls just might be just way too high. But actually, we can start with a bit more pragmatic thinking and then build internally and start developing what we have. Really like it, really neat. So this part of the show is where we typically get to hack into the minds of great leaders. And this is my chance to hack into your many years of experience. I'm going to ask you to share with our listeners, if you could, Brad, what your top leadership hacks would be. Uh, my pleasure. <laughs> so the foremost one, the most important one, is for your listeners to remember that there's nothing more important to the success of a leader or a business than building a winning strategy. If you think about it, there's lots of important leadership qualities. I can give you a long list, and I'm sure you've discussed many of them on your podcast. You know, whether it be charisma or vision, whether it be, you know, compassion or empathy, you know, and I could go on and on and on hiring great people, you know, and so forth. But none of those things matter if you don't make the right bets and you don't build the right strategies. And so the first leadership hack, I would tell you, and the, the first and most important one is that strategy is the most essential ingredient to leadership's success. If you don't build a winning strategy, nothing else matters. Another key leadership hack is don't lose focus on your customers. That is one that I find happens a lot. In the day-to-day -day craziness of running a business, sometimes people lose sight of what their customers really care about. And if you're not on top of your 
customers and what their requirements are, what their values are, what, what interests them, then you're likely to build a strategy that won't be successful. So that's another one. Stay focused on customers. And if you're in a big company, don't get lost in what often is called the ivory tower in all the layers of a big company that keeps you distant from your customers. Stay close to your customers. Right. And then a third one I would say for a leader is hire to your weakness. It's really important to understand yourself well and your company well and find people to round out your skills uh, so that you have you know, the, a good uh, you know, pot of skills that is necessary for any company to be successful i love that uh that whole premise of you know higher to your lack of skill and unconsciously i wonder how many of our leaders genuinely genuinely think uh, i'm i'm not as strong here therefore i'm going to hire somebody who can really help fill that gap really neat love that by the way i find lots of leaders hire people that they think aren't a threat to them which is of course a mistake so they don't hire to their weakness they sure. hire people that sure. will listen to what they want them to do yeah and of course, that that in itself is a is a leadership gap, isn't it? You know, having that lack of self awareness is only going to seek to hold that individual back longer term. Totally agree. Great point. The next part of this show, we affectionately call this "Hack to Attack," and this is where we look back over your work or your career, and we think about a time where things maybe haven't gone as well, and maybe even screwed up. But we've now used that experience, that time in our work, as a lesson that we now use positively in our life. So what would be your hack to attack, Brad? So this requires a little bit of a story, uh, my hack to attack. Go for it. So in around 1999, I was asked to go run MSN at Microsoft. And MSN was the least successful part of Microsoft at the time. Revenue was non-existent. Traffic was low, uh, sort of at the same level as other uh, ineffective uh, we websites at the time. And the morale in the MSN group was the lowest of any group in the company. And for six months, I really struggled to sort of figure it out. And I finally came up with a strategy, which I was pretty excited about. And though we could go back and think about some of the thing, other mistakes I, met, I made, the, the key one here was that I built a strategy around using the high traffic parts of MSN, email, which at the time was Hotmail, uh, and communications properties such as Instant Messenger to drive people into the network and then use search to monetize them. Uh, and I had a couple other things we used to monetize them, like shopping as well. And so I reorganized the entire group around this strategy, and we made huge progress. And communicating the strategy to the team and having a clear strategy for the team started to really help morale. And we started to make huge progress. And within about a year, we went from an also ran to being number one in search worldwide, number two in the US. We had doubled our revenue and our morale had gone from the worst in the company to just above the midpoint, all in a year. It was an absolutely spectacular turnaround. But I made a huge mistake, which is I didn't really sell hard enough to my bosses what the strategy was all about and why I was doing it. I sold it to everybody else. And, my, and I had you know, a lot of leeway because I had been successful at Microsoft. Uh, but I didn't really get into the sort of uh, 
you know, getting the senior execs uh, to internalize uh, why I was doing what I was doing. So we had huge success, but then after this period of time, uh, there was some thinking above me that search was more of a commodity business and that uh, it, it wasn't important. And, and so the company wanted to reorganize search out of my group. And that was, that was, you know, not viable if MSN was going to continue to be successful. And upon reflection, the lesson I learned, the leadership hack was that I didn't work hard enough to persuade my bosses that search was fundamental to the, to our strategy and to where we were going. I kind of lived on the, the success I'd had in the past. In the past, I had been very successful convincing people uh, and executives about what I wanted to do and had been successful at it. And I kind of lived on that past success. Instead of putting together the very comprehensive presentation, demanding time with my bosses to explain why the strategy was so important, I kind of depended on my past success. And as a consequence, they went through with the organizational change despite my uh, arguing to the contrary. And I ended up leaving Microsoft on good terms. There was lots of reasons I left more than the strategic uh, differences that I had. Uh, but the lesson from all this is that if you firmly believe in something and you, and you feel strongly about it, you have to fight for it. And you can't stop fighting. I had always been a fighter. And on this one, I think for whatever reason, I just didn't fight hard enough. It's a fantastic lesson. Yeah, is And so my leadership hack is from that mistake is to keep fighting for what you believe in, in, in business strategy. And if you feel strongly enough, then pull out all the stops uh, to make sure that you do everything you can to convince your, le your leaders or your bosses that your strategy is the right one. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing it. A really great story. The last thing I'd like to explore with you is, is to do a bit of time travel for you to bump back into Brad when you were 21. And if you got a chance to have a conversation or a coffee with Brad at 21, what would be your advice to him? Well, if you had a picture of me now, you'd see a guy who's mostly bald and mostly gray. So I probably would first tell him, enjoy your hair while you had it. But, <laughs> yeah, I know how that feels, um, by the way. On a, on a more serious note, I, I would have... Uh, you know, the lesson I just imparted would have been one. Uh, the The importance of strategy, I certainly didn't understand when I was 21. Uh, that was a lesson I learned over the years, and I would have loved to have known that earlier. And so I think that uh, would have been a, a key business lesson. Of course, you know, in all these things, you have to understand what's important to you and what your goals are. Um, and uh, I think that the perspective you get with time about what's really important and being thoughtful about that is something else I would have imparted to myself at 21. So, you know, I guess to summarize, I would say I would have reinforced to myself the importance of strategy, reinforced to myself at 21, the importance of understanding yourself and knowing what's important to you uh, in a, you know, sort of a very thoughtful way so that you can go about your business in a self-aware, self-confident way. Super. Brad, thanks for sharing that. Now, 
folk listening to this, I'm sure, are going to want to learn a little bit more about the work that you do uh, and indeed get an opportunity to have a look at Strategy First, which is now available pretty much everywhere. So if you wanted our listeners to bump into you, find out a little bit about that, where's the best place they can do that? So I would recommend that they follow me on LinkedIn, uh, which is really the only social network that I participate in, or to go to my website, bradchase.net. Uh, and, and follow my blog posts and and you know learn about what we're doing there and of course read the book uh, strategy first uh, you know has much more detail uh, of course on the concepts that we've talked about here um, today Steve sure and if they also join up through your website there's some really useful tools they can download isn't there there is one of the things I recommend all companies do is a strategy offsite and a strategy offsite starts with a honest self-assessment of the business today uh, and where you're at uh, versus your competition, which, by the way, is something I didn't mention, but I should reinforce. Your strategy only matters relative to your competition. And so that's really important. That's the way you evaluate it. And, you know, so you do a self-assessment and then you could have a discussion about where you want your strategy to head over time. And on my website are some worksheets that help you do that assessment great and we'll make sure we put the links to your site and to your linkedin profile in our show notes so as soon as people are finished listening they can click straight over sounds terrific so brad it's for me to say i i feel more strategic just in having this conversation with you it's been fantastic being able to hack into your mind and all of the experience that you bring with it to uh, to where you are now. I wish you every success with Strategy First, but I also just want to say thank you so much for being part of our journey on the Leadership Hacker podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Steve. It's great to meet you as well. And I hope people find my book and our discussions today super helpful. I'm sure they will, Brad. Thanks for joining us. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event or you would like to sponsor an episode please connect with us via our social media and you can do that by following and liking our pages on twitter and facebook our handle there is at leadership hacker instagram you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker and at youtube we're just leadership hacker so that's me signing off i'm steve rush and i've been the leadership hacker